Shalom. This is Gary Dershinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And in Galatians chapter 5, just to remind ourselves, beginning at verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And he lists them to us. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Messiah have put to death the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This passage is really a passage about the harvesting of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God desires to harvest in each one of us fruit. And so we're told that we are in a conflict, we are in a battle, and there's a principle at large in our inner being, in our inner fiber. There's a principle at work. There's something that has been unleashed within us that causes us to act in a way contrary to the character of God. Paul refers to it as the sinful nature. In reality, we have one nature. We have a human nature. It is what distinguishes us from animals, from plants, and from other objects. We have a human nature. When we were created by God, he created us in his image, in his likeness. But because of our forefathers, maybe forefathers is not the right word, our ancestors, our progenitors, those who, Adam and Eve, who brought into reality all of humanity as we exist today, because of their actions in the garden, in rebelling against God, they unleashed within us a principle, an action, uh, a, a thing that is at work within us. We don't really know what to refer to it as specifically, although Paul uses the word nature. But it's at work in our being 
that causes us to be alienated from God on the one hand. It's what Paul or theologians refer to as original sin. It's that which alienates us from God. And then it causes us to do actions that are contrary to the nature of God. That is what we theologians refer to as personal sin, our own personal actions. And so Paul refers to these personal actions as the acts of the flesh. What we do through our bodies, because out from our bodies, that sin principle is made manifest. And it's seen in our actions. It's seen in our attitudes. It's seen in our behavior. Paul delineates some of those behaviors as we read about them. And he says, and those kinds of things that are like that. But then he says, for those of us in whom the spirit of God has taken hold, those of us who have come to recognize Yeshua as Messiah and as a result are putting to death the works of the flesh, we are in a conflict. And that conflict is empowered by the Spirit of God energizing us and enabling us to live in a manner that is more in conformity with Yeshua himself. That's why I like that song that we uh, sung. We're trying to learn some new melodies and some new music that's out there. I remember last year, just talking about music, I remember last year I received a worship magazine which had the top 20 Worship songs that were used across the nation in variety of congregations and churches. And so Edward and I sat down. We did not do one of them. Not a one. And I said, that needs to change. So now we're starting to introduce some new stuff. It's not 1970 anymore. It's not 1980. It's not even 1990. It's not even 2000. It's 2010. We're in the 21st century. And so there's all kinds of new things out there. But I love that line, there is power. Now, we didn't need a new song to tell us that. You remember that old hymn, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. See, I know some hymns. You know, when I first came to faith, that's all I sung. It's not like I don't like them or they haven't, like, just riveted themselves in my mind. I think I once told you this story, but one of the first times that I was involved in um, being with a believer who was dying. And I went in to visit with her. She was dying of cancer, and she was on uh, her bed, in her bedside. Hospice was present in the home at that time. And I sat down next to her, and I held her hand, and I started reading Scripture. And as I was reading Scripture, I could see she was breathing, you know, more and more. But she was basically just there, and she couldn't be responsive. And then I started singing. I wanted to do something more than simply read scripture. I started singing some worship songs to her. And the songs that came to my mind were just hymns. And while I was singing to her, I saw her breathe her last. And it was one of the most glorious sights. I I used to kid it was because of my singing that finally, you know. (laughs) But while I was singing, and I'll tell you, I mean, there was such a presence of God in the room, I really thought a door opened on the other side of the bed and I had this urge that I just wanted to jump over the bed and go through that door. It was that real to me that the Lord was present. No doubt it had something to do with the reading of his word and singing of songs that spoke of the truths of his word. 
But there's some very wonderful new songs with new sounds and new melodies and new rhythms that are out there. But that phrase, there is power, there is power that is enabled to us by the Spirit of God. And for what purpose? But to live a life that is motivated by the very presence of the Spirit. And that's why Paul says we have to uh, walk in the Spirit. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to be led by the Spirit. It's why Yeshua says that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. That's why Paul tells us that we are filled with the Spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit. We are sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been granted to us in a manner in which he has not been granted in ages past. Yeshua said, the Spirit is with you, but he will. Here's the new thing, will be in you. The relationship we can have with God is not limited to a select few who experience temporarily the filling and presence of the Spirit, but you and I can experience that every moment, every day, as ones who have given our lives to him. And what does the Spirit want to do with his empowering presence? The issue is not the doing of miracles, although that may happen. The doing, the working of the Spirit is not so that the Word of God will be taught with greatness, but rather with conviction, with clarity and significance. But the working of the Spirit of God is to work in our lives to transform us and to change us and to have us behave in ways that we cannot otherwise behave unless God enables us to so behave that way. That's what Paul is telling us here. We are in a battle. If left to ourselves, the works of the flesh, the sinful works of the flesh will be evident. And whenever they are evident, it's because we are not yielded to the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. But where there is the manifestation of those character and qualities of Yeshua, it's because the the Spirit of God has made himself seen in and through us. Now, the two things that I just want to refer to this morning is this aspect of goodness and faithfulness. The two are really connected in a way because together they reveal to us a sense of integrity about our lives. Goodness has to do with being consistent with what we say about ourselves. Goodness has to do with being consistent with what we say about ourselves, what we proclaim about ourselves. So I remember years ago when I was praying with a fellow that was on staff when I was with Chosen People Ministries. I don't even, I haven't spoke with him in a long, long time. Do you remember Mitch Treisman? Is he still, he used to teach on staff at Philadelphia College of the Bible for a while. He's still there. And knew him long ago in the 70s. I remember when our staff in the Northeast were together in prayer. His prayer was that the Lord would take hold of our lives. That our lip would be consistent or that our life would be consistent with our lip. That our behavior would be consistent with our beliefs. And he had another one that went together. I can't remember. But that our lip and life belief and behavior would come together. 
Goodness and faithfulness is a reflection of a life of integrity. Being one who is good means to have our life consistent with what we say. Being faithful means that we have our life consistent with what we do. Faithfulness has to do with trustworthiness. Faithfulness has to do with keeping your word. Goodness has to do with manifesting your word. Manifesting what you say about yourself. And it's interesting how often this comes up. We're looking in Galatians. Look at chapter 6. This is the next chapter. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, there it is again, from that nature will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary, here we go, in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, here it is again, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I love the last line of Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But at the very end, he says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I remember years ago when a preacher was speaking on this passage, he, gave, he made this motion that is just st- stuck with me, and that is he began to walk, and he would turn around, and he said, goodness and mercy keep following me. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know. They'll follow me all the days of my life. But what, what they mean by that is that goodness and mercy will characterize my life all the days of my life. In other words, I want to be one that manifests the goodness that comes from God, and I want to be one that experiences the mercy, which is another way of speaking about the faithfulness of God. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit are the manifestations of the Spirit of God. That is to say, it's the manifestations of God himself. God is good. That's why the psalmist will say, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is consistent with his word. When the Lord says you will reap destruction if you act in conformity with your sinful flesh, he's consistent with himself. And that truth will not go unabated. It will occur. Similarly, when he says anyone who embraces him will have eternal life, he is consistent with his word. And thus his promises are true. He is a faithful God, and therefore what he says he will accomplish in our lives and for us. So when Yeshua says, I will come again, he will come again. Now, I know, and as Peter says, there are many who question the veracity, the trustworthiness of God. Because it's been 2,000 years since Messiah said he would come again, and he hasn't yet showed up. Peter tells us the reason why he hasn't yet come. It's not because he has forgotten about us, for he's intimately acquainted with us by his spirit. It's not that he's given up on us. If he was to have given up on us, that he would have done a long time ago. Rather, the reason he hasn't yet come is because he has not yet given up. And his complete purposes for this world has not yet come to fruition. This is the era, the age of the Gentiles. And God will continue to work 
in our world until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Then his attention will be turned to the Jewish people. And we will see one day when all Israel shall be saved. But Peter tells us why the Lord has delayed or seemingly delayed his coming. Because he's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. The day will come when he will come. And the opportunity for repentance is cut off. We are most privileged that Messiah has not yet come. For it has given us opportunity to embrace him, to walk with him, and to follow him. And so what God wants to create in our own lives is the same sense of integrity. You know, one of Yeshua's scathing statements throughout his entire earthly ministry was that of the hypocrisy that he saw, not among the normal population in Israel, but among the religious population in Israel. Not in every religious individual, but in most religious individuals, his scathing remark was regarding their hypocrisy their lack of integrity, and their lack of consistency with their word and with their ways. Now, you know, this sense of integrity, you know, we speak of whole numbers. We refer to them as integers. And that's because they're not fractions. And so when we speak of integrity related to the word like integer, it means that God wants us to live a whole life, a complete life, not a fractured life, but a life that is consistent with what we say And with what we do. So the question is, how do we develop this matter, manner of being people of integrity? Turn with me to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1. John's letter is filled with the word over and over again, this idea of truth, which is another way of speaking about integrity. And so he says in verse 9, or excuse me, um, let's, come, let's come back to verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The person who says, I know him, but, not, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Yeshua did. And this is John's whole focus throughout his letter. This sense of integrity. That's why we turn here. This sense of consistency like God is. He's saying, this is how we know we are in him. It is by a walk that is consistent. Now, keep in mind, we're not perfect. Keep in mind that we still battle the flesh. That's what Paul says. We are in a battle with our sinful nature. He's not talking about perfection. John, Paul, neither of them are talking about perfection. In fact, if you think about this, when you look at some of the characters in Scripture, take David, for example. He's referred to as a man after God's own heart, yet he was found out as being both a murderer and an adulterer. To you and I, those would be like two very bad sins. There are other sins that are pretty bad, but those two usually get high grades for badness in our minds. And David was guilty of both. 
So now you ask, how is it that a man who committed adultery, a man who committed murder, could be at the very same time referred to as a person after God's own heart? We would assume that is not a person after God's own heart. But the reason why he can be so described as a person before God as a man uh, in whom God dwells, a man after God's heart, is because when Nathan appeared to him, the prophet, and revealed to him his sin, he did not attempt to cover it up. He did not attempt to excuse himself. Now, when Nathan told David of his sin, he told him in a parable of a story, remember? In which he was told that there was someone who had a sheep or a lamb, and the lamb was taken from this individual. Well, David was outraged over that action. What he didn't understand by the parable was that that story was meant to convey what David had done to Uriah the Hittite by taking what was most precious, most dear, most beloved by Uriah. Once he knew, and by the way, the reason why Nathan tells that parable, rather than just saying, David, you're a sinner, is because he's talking to the king of Israel. He's talking to the most powerful man in the kingdom. He's talking to him, number one, out of respect, perhaps some degree of reverence, fear, because David could say, off with his head. But also because Nathan is not interested in merely accusing David of his sin. His desire is to restore David from his sinfulness and to set him back on a right path with God. So he wants to ease into this. He doesn't just come right out and say, do you know what you said, what you meant, what you did? He came out with a way in which he could sort of lead into this and talk about it with him. And the moment David knew, he wrote Psalm 51. And he acknowledged that I am a sinner. In fact, that phrase occurs like maybe five times in scripture. I have sinned. And because he didn't seek to excuse, when you compare that with Adam and Eve in the garden... What a dramatic difference between the different characters. When God appears and says, Adam, where are you? He doesn't say, you know, I did what I was told not to do. I'm really sorry. Forgive me. He rather attempts to hide from God, not be found out. But when he is found out, it's too late and the judgment has fallen. In the case of David, when he's found out, he repents. And he receives the consequences. Not easily, but he receives them. Because he realizes his wrongdoing. And so when scripture speaks about, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk like Messiah. And that's what David did. When his sin was made known, he repented. He didn't seek to hide it, excuse it, or ignore it. Rather, he came before God and he said, Lord, forgive me of my sin and set me on the right path that I might not fall prey to it again. But if I do, bring it to my mind once again that I might repent of it. And that's why he says, uh, as he goes on in verse 7, Dear friends, 
I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one. He says in verse 8, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him because the darkness is passing. He says in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because he is blind. Now, if we look at chapter 1, as he concludes this chapter to leave into this section of truth, he says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth, here's that issue of integrity, is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Someone has said, and I think they're right, that all sin begins with the belief that God does not mean what he says. That's what the issue of goodness is about. Being consistent with what we say, faithfulness, being consistent with what we, what we do. God has said that when we sin, judgment will fall. And when we sin, we will be alienated from God. So what John tells us, which is very interesting to me, is that if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. All sin begins with believing that God does not mean what he says. Which is another way of saying we would believe that God is a liar. And that what he says is not what will happen or what will come true. That's what happened in the garden, right? When the evil one says that uh, you will not die. And when Eve believes that, she's now believing God is the one who has lied. So what is goodness? Goodness, then, is being consistent with what we say. Faithfulness is being consistent with what we will do. Messiah said he will come. He will come again. Messiah said he would give us eternal life. He has given us eternal life. Messiah says he's preparing a place. He is preparing that place for us. That's his faithfulness toward us. God is faithful. God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he wants to manifest those same qualities in our own lives. So how do we develop them? I think there's just a single word for developing these things. We see it in David's life, as I said. We see it throughout the lives of those who follow him. And that is humility. That's where goodness and faithfulness come from. And there are three ways in which humility is spoken of in the scriptures, or in three areas. For example, when we speak of humility before God, we're talking about being submissive to him. And so humility comes, first of all, is developed when we are submissive to God. Humility before him means we're submissive to his will. We do his will. A second area of humility that scripture speaks about is humility before his word. If you take a look at James chapter 1. Let me just show you this passage. James chapter 1. Looking at verse 21. Begin at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. 
For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And here it is. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your life. So when we have humility before God, we're talking about being submissive to him. When we have humility before his word, we're talking about being teachable, to have a teachable spirit. We see this in David. He's submissive before God. He acknowledges his sin. He's submissive as a, one who is being taught by the prophet about his life through this parable. We see that he's submissive uh, before God's word. And then the last area that humility is to be developed in is submissive or humility before one another. And when we're humble before one another, we're considerate of one another. We're sensitive to one another. And so there's a sense of consideration. When we are submissive to God, when we are teachable and um, submissive or willing to, to live in accordance with his word, and when we are humble before one another, can consider it to one another, then we will manifest goodness to one another. And then we will be a people who are seen as faithful and consistent with our word and what we say. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Father, for the working of your spirit in our lives. It is our desire, Lord, that we might see the fruit of the spirit, this harvesting by the spirit, that he would harvest these fruits in our lives and bring them to reality. We pray that we might be ones that manifest love and sacrificial giving one to the other. We pray that we might manifest joy and a sense of hopefulness in who you are. We, we desire, Father, to manifest a sense of peace and to be rid and free of whatever anxiety might disturb us. We pray, Father, that we might manifest goodness and patience and long-suffering to one another. But we want to be a good people, Lord, for you are good. And we want to be faithful, even as you are faithful to us. So, Father, might you bring to bear the working of your spirit in this regard in each and every one of our lives. That we would manifest Messiah in our midst. And that we, Father, would be used of you to build one another up and to lead many into a dynamic relationship with you. We praise you, our Lord, and we thank you for this, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.